0: Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the townhays who spent their whole lives Long-stepping footfalls and catching sad flies They're guys, Remember 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 that guy 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 just gonna remember some guys now your puny ballpark cannot contain my gargantuan blast bring me your finest meats and remember that guy the show where we monitor memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks happy to be on the mic for the first time in 2023 it is james i got baby new year here on one side let's see who we got on the other side
1: dia joining james to their left and we have an incredibly special guest goes great with that quote we have The executive vice president of Arby's, somebody who definitely has the meats. Please introduce yourself.
2: You know what? I am the one who invented that slogan. It was actually supposed to be used for a different company first. Didn't play well there, but Arby's was totally fine taking it on. I do have the meats. It is me, the very special guest, Xavier.
0: Xavier, thank you for bringing the meats. I must ask, in addition to the meats and, of course, some honey mustard for them, uh, did you bring anything that's making memories for you right now?
2: I brought something very spicy uh, that is Ooh. that is making memories. So, U.S. Soccer Twitter, for the past two days, and going back even a little further, has been essentially the worst soccer parent slash people who are from New Jersey online argument of all time. For those who don't know, U.S. Soccer has been very... Um, it, it's been run by... A very close group of families, essentially, for the longest time. It's essentially like the Mafia, where half of everyone who is in charge comes from the same couple families.
0: And also, they all come from New Jersey.
2: And almost all of them come from New Jersey. In fact, over the past 25 years, the U.S. has had one head coach that was not from New York or New Jersey. That's how weirdly regional it is. So, a couple days ago, the... Previous head coach slash not current head coach because his contract expired December 31st, but still candidate to get a an extension. Greg Burhalter tweeted out a statement saying that someone was trying to take him down by going to US Soccer. He didn't use the word blackmail. People have said the word blackmail a lot. He technically did not use the word blackmail, but the implication is someone was trying to threaten him with publishing of private information that makes him look bad. So he just came out and said it in 1991, uh, back when he was 18 years old uh, and a freshman at UNC. He, after a night at the bar, got into a physical altercation with a woman. What he says is that he kicked her in the legs. This woman, by the name of Rosalind, would then go on to become his wife and has been his wife over 25 years. they very open in the statement about how They were seeing each other at the time. This broke off their relationship and he went to counseling and it took seven months before she would even speak to him again. And then he ended up apologizing to her whole family and friends. And it seems like they moved past this to the tune of being married 25 years and having four kids. But someone wanted to bring this up to say, your coach is a domestic abuser, essentially. You should fire him. It sounds like
1: a person that has no ulterior motives and is only concerned with the well-being of the team and the integrity of the team.
2: There was immediate speculation uh, on on Twitter for a number of reasons, but one of the, the things that people went back to was who would possibly know about this thing from 31 years ago and who would have a reason to actually say anything The conspiracy theorists' tweets were about the Reyna family. Claudio Reyna captained the USA at the 2002 World Cup. His wife, Danielle Reyna, also played for the US women's national team. Their son, Gio Reyna, 20 year old star, plays for Borussia Dortmund, did not play a lot at the World Cup. There was a very public kind of blow up where it came out after the World Cup that he had been told that he was going to have a limited role. He is a very injury-prone player. We don't know why he was told he was going to have a limited role. Could have been injury-related. But essentially, he kind of caused the stink and almost got sent home because he was being a bit of a brat. Greg Burhalter, not naming him, but also being very stupid in what he thought were off-the-record Chatham House comments, talked about, you know, how they dealt with this situation after the World Cup, inevitably got leaked, and Gio had to release a statement in his own defense. So people kind of were like two and two together, like, could this be a thing? And then yesterday, January 4th, in a report from ESPN and also to The Athletic turns out, yes, it was the Reynas. Even further context, Claudio and Greg grew up together. They went to the same high school and played soccer together starting as sophomores. Then they obviously went on to play on the national team together. And you know have been very close. Danielle Reyna was roommates with Rosalind Burhalter at UNC, where they played soccer together as well. It is pretty clear from you know just everything that has been said. Like Claudio met Danielle after visiting Greg at UNC because he was at Virginia and met her through that. Like these families are so intrinsically connected since they were teenagers and are now, you know, in their fifties. So first the reports come out is that Claudia was sending essentially threatening text messages to U.S. soccer officials who are also friends of both families. And then Danielle comes out with a statement saying that she essentially actually called Ernie Stewart. First of all, she said that she's known Ernie for years and considered him a close friend and didn't think that this would lead to any drama Despite the fact that, again, she's calling Burhalter's boss at the time, the head of U.S. soccer, she claims, she said, why is Gio getting dragged for this when Greg did something much worse at his age and we forgave him? It's like, I didn't know that that would lead to an investigation or Greg possibly losing his job. I just didn't want people to pick on my son anymore. And so now we are at a situation where Greg Burhalter's wife, Rosalind, has had what is probably the most traumatic experience of her life. It took her months to forgive this man who would then go on to be her husband, but has clearly moved past it in a way where she built a life with him. Has had this dragged up by who she thought was her best friend slash college roommate and teammate whose families have been together for 30 plus years. Her kids know about this now. Her friends and family know about this now if they previously didn't know about it. And it seems to all be because... Her friend's son didn't get enough playing time under her husband.
0: I can't wait for season three of Succession, man. Season four. I'm sorry. I fucked that up.
2: There's so many questions going forward. One, is there any way that Greg can get his job back? There was a people already hesitant on whether or not he should get an extension or not. And now it's, first of all, he put his foot in his mouth by thinking he could say something off the record and not have it get, get leaked that he should have just dealt with during camp but now also it's gone so much further with all his past and, again, not downplaying any sort of domestic violence thing here. The big problem I have with that is that Reignas knew about this for 30-plus years and clearly didn't care or knew that Roslyn and Greg had worked through it and then chose to bring it up to the public view because they were mad about their son's playing time. So who knows what's going to happen with Greg Burrhalter? Who knows what's going to happen with Geo? Like, this makes him look... Pretty bad in that his parents are the worst helicopter parents in the world and believe that their 20-year-old son cannot make his own decisions and deal with things themselves. They have to do it in the background by going to the top of U.S. soccer. What's going to happen with Claudio Reyna? He's currently the sporting director of Austin FC, a team that just made the Western Conference Finals this past season. This makes him look terrible too. And then what's going to happen with the rest of the Berhalter family who have had to deal with this now? It's the biggest shit show. I've listened to about five different soccer podcasts going over it because it's all anyone in U.S. soccer can talk about right now. It is the craziest drama I've ever heard. And I both can't wait to see what happens, but also wish this did not happen ever.
1: The only thing I can think to say, to put this whole thing kind of in perspective, we are three individuals all near the age of 30. And in 2018, for the first time in our lives, U.S. men's national team did not make a World Cup. And in 2022, they somehow managed to have an even more scandalous thing happen and be an even bigger shit show than they were four years ago.
0: Like they had a pretty good World Cup performance,
2: and now it, 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 it was solid. And even if we go back to 2018, Greg Berhalter was hired after that you know failure to qualify. And there was a lot of issues with his hiring because there were a lot of things leaked from U.S. soccer that essentially they were just going to gift him the job without really interviewing anybody else, and that his brother was the COO of U.S. soccer. So essentially, everyone was claiming, you know, nepotism and that his brother essentially gifted him this job. And one of the people who defended his credentials for getting the job in the first place was Claudio Reyna. The, the layers to this are immense. But it's going to be wild to see what happens next. It's messier than the current 10th ballot of voting for the Speaker of the House. It's so bad. It's the worst of North Jersey and helicopter parents all put together.
1: Literally about to make that point. The U.S. Men's National Team is the only organization that can make the GOP leadership seem competent and well put together. God, it's so true.
0: You know, earlier this year, Paolo Espino for the Nationals, he came within four innings of the Major League record for most innings pitched without a win. And I have a lot of respect for Kevin McCarthy. Bless his heart. He went out there and said, I can do one better than that.
1: The, The most incredible thing to me is I feel strongly that even as we record on Thursday, by the time listeners receive this episode on Monday, I feel very strongly that there will still not be a Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy will continue banging his head against the wall. Speaking of doing one better, James, I'm curious what memories you may have that might be just even a little bit slightly better or maybe more ludicrous, maybe more butt buzzy. I'm not sure where you're going to go. What's making memories?
0: Perhaps more ludicrous. And uh, mentioning banging your head against the wall is also appropriate because I do first want to go back real quick to Sunday Night Football where, you know, the Ravens played the Steelers and some stuff happened. That's fine. We don't need to get into that. Except for one thing that happened in the second quarter. As you might remember from the preseason, our mascot Poe got very badly injured in a halftime entertainment game against children. And according to the Ravens, severely injured his drumstick. Because the Ravens have still not at any point acknowledged the health of the human being in the Poe mascot costume. And I'm afraid that we will never get resolution on how the human being is. Because Poe was wheeled out on a wheelchair during the second quarter of this game, like right into it, by Edgar and Allen, his brothers, who've been filling in for him. And you know Kevin Nash, even if you don't know the name. Kevin Nash is the uh, wrestler who has that cast that he then whips the blanket off of the wheelchair to reveal that, in fact, there is no cast and he's fine. Poe busted out of his cast and started dancing on the field. It was the injury update we'd all been waiting for, other than Lamar Jackson great for the character Poe do still want to know like how that human being is doing but he is off the IR so that's one person's making memories for me Poe and the indomitable Raven spirit the other two people that are making memories for me first off there's Scott Stallings he is the 54th ranked golfer in the world right now he is just this year making it back to the Masters for the first time since he made it in 2014 when he missed the cut on day two so Scott Stallings is making memories for me along with Scott Stallings Second Scott Stallings (laughs) is a condo resident who lives presumably around Knoxville, Tennessee, where Golf Scott uh, reportedly lives. Condo Scott Stallings also has a wife named Jennifer, which is the same name as Golf Scott Stallings' wife. And so because of his name, his wife's name, and his relative geographic location, while Golf Scott Stallings was waiting by the mailbox and checking like every five minutes to see where his master's invitation was, Condo Scott Stallings was very surprised to find an invitation to play at the masters. <laughs> we do know this because Scott Stallings of the golf persuasion has informed us he's made contact with him. He's going to get his invite. I do want to say, I think Condo Scott Stallings is entitled to one celeb shot. I think Condo I... Scott Stallings gets to come to the masters and like, there's one layup putt that golf Scott Stallings sets up. Like he gets on the green within like six feet and Condo Scott Stallings just pops up from the crowd. I get this one.
2: I would have loved it if Condo Scott Stallings just did it himself. Just, he just shows up there. And they're like, who are you? Like, here's my ID. Here's my invitation to the Masters. Clearly, you can see I was invited to the Masters. So I'm going to compete today. And then just goes out there and, like, hits it two feet on a drive and then just walks off and is never seen from again.
1: Trying to think of a joke to relate to Scott Sterling. Like, I was
2: thinking
1: this is this guy going to like line up on the first tee and just launch a drive directly into his own face? Like That's what I would like to say.
0: We don't know what Kondo Scott-Stalling's golf skills are, but I do think he should get a chance to at least once display them. But yeah, that's, uh, that's who's making memories for me.
1: For me, I'm going to go on a little more serious note. Thankfully, today we had a, a pretty positive upturn, and because of how rapidly things can change with this, I don't want to speak too much to the specific health circumstances of DeMar Hamlin. Thankfully, today, we got noticed that he has been responding and communicative with doctors. Uh, He's been squeezing family members' hands. In fact, the first thing that he communicated once he was able to, he's still not able to speak, but he wrote on a notepad to the doctors who won uh, in reference to the game on Monday night when, thankfully. In a very quick response by the medical team after DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field, they're able to resuscitate him. They're able to get him to the hospital again today, thankfully. We got a pretty positive update on Thursday. Hopefully by Monday, there's even better news. But I don't want to speak too specifically about that. Two points I wanted to make. First of all, I think we rightly give the NFL a lot of shit about a lot of things that it does in response to player safety and you know looking out for the players. All things considered, I think they've handled it just about as well as you could have. There was some talk about, oh, well, they originally only gave them five minutes. I think, I mean, that's just the protocol when there is a long delay. I think it was more, it was one of those things where as soon as you say it out loud, you realize how ridiculous it sounds. Ultimately, the right call to call that game off on Monday night. And the other point I want to make is there's a lot of talk about how out of control player salaries are these days and you know in particular some older players might say well back in my day we played for love of the game but blah, blah, blah. what we saw on monday night and thankfully as again as we record it seems like the worst case scenario has been avoided but to anybody that ever says that the players are overpaid or they're not worth it quite literally on a daily basis. It's not just the games that we see. It can be in the practices. It can be at any moment while they are pushing their bodies to their absolute limit. Ultimately, for our entertainment, this is the risk that they run every moment. We saw it at Euro with Christian Erickson. Fortunately, he's back to play again. We see it again with DeMar Hamlin. Anybody who has any problem with any amount that any athlete ever gets paid or if you're like, why is he holding out? He's not putting the team first, blah, blah, blah. Fuck all that. That was a terrifying reminder of just how serious the risk is when your work quite literally relies on your body. It seems like the Bills are probably going to end up playing this weekend. It looks like they're going to cancel the original Bills-Bengals game, which, I mean, ultimately, I get it. The NFL is still a business. Money talks. But I think the NFL got it right. All the credit in the world to the medical staff that was on hand immediately at the field.
0: Kenny Ellington is the name that has come out as the dude that did CPR. I was going to say, someone that had to get first aid certified at one point, you were supposed to be like doing enough force to crack ribs if you're doing it for nine minutes.
1: All the best wishes to everybody in Buffalo. I just, I can't get it out of my head. And like, especially now, I think I've said before on this podcast, I know I've said it to both of you, but like, Buffalo is the one team that if the Eagles played in the Super Bowl, even before all this, I would have been like, you know what? I'm okay with losing to him. And I, I can't get out of my head the, the vision now of the Bills win the Super Bowl. You know, DeMar Hamlin hopefully released from a hospital by then in good enough strength to attend the game, and he's the first one to get to Lombardi. I mean, I just I can't imagine a more beautiful thing. Best wishes to DeMar. Uh, thank you, Kenny Ellington. Thank you, everybody at Cincinnati. And what, what a reminder that we obviously we come here to talk about guys, but as fans, we invest so much into these games, and then all of a sudden they get put back in perspective very quickly. I also
0: need to make one quick retraction. Denny Kellington. Denny Kellington. Been, <laughs> I wanted to make sure I got absolutely Denny right Ellington
1: is the evil brother.
0: <laughs> Denny Kellington. I can't even remember the first one that I said now. It's just Denny Kellington. I'm wiping that out. Kenny
1: one. Ellington. Yeah, it's
2: first. Not
0: Kenny Ellington.
2: Also, if you are someone who has made money through football whether it be gambling or fantasy, maybe you want to send a few dollars towards DeMar Hamlin's Toy Drive, which has become a de facto way to show your appreciation and support for him and his family.
1: Now, that thing is up over, I believe, $7 million as we record. It might, even, it might get to 10 by the time the episode releases, so... Really impressed to see that. And you brought it up, Xavier Fantasy. I mean, I picked up DeMar Hamlin halfway through the year in our Dynasty League, and he ended up being huge for me, which, again, just sounds so fucking silly to say in the context of what we just witnessed. But, you know, thank God he's all right, seemingly. And hopefully we continue to get more positive news as as this goes forward. But the larger kind of takeaway from all this to me is that the players deserve everything that they get. There's sometimes people that say that they get too much, but you know, I think it's it really shows the strength of the players' union and whatnot that we are in this position where everybody is now respecting more as we get older, the rights of the player. But Xavier, I think the larger topic you want to talk about this week is we want to kind of look at the guys that have paved the way for us to be in this current era of player rights,
2: yeah. So what we think of as Possibly like a golden era for player rights and player empowerment, especially in some of the major American sports leagues. That's very, very recent, both here in America and across the globe. Even just as recently as our lifetimes, there was much less power and freedom for professional athletes. I want to talk about, you know, with soccer on my mind, the one man for soccer who Probably did the most for player empowerment in the last 60 plus years. I want to talk about Jean Marc
1: Osman. Sounds vaguely French. If you want to call Belgians
2: vague, vaguely French, that's you know what
0: exactly what I want to call Belgians. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. So Osman, born October 30th, 1964, in Liège, Belgium, grows up playing soccer from young age. And starts his youth career as a midfielder at local powerhouse Standard Liège. He's a bright prospect, even plays twenty games or so with the Belgium under twenty one team, captaining them on a couple occasions. But after about five years, eighty six games, Osman never quite lived up to his early promise with Standard, and gets transferred to local rival R F C Liège. He's there for two seasons, but he only ever appears in three games. And after his contract expires, the now 25 year old Bosman attempted to join lower league French team Dunkirk. However, in a way similar to the already at this time abolished reserve clause, RFC retained Bosman's rights even after his contract was over and demanded 500,000 pounds from Dunkirk all up front, or 500,000 euros, I believe. This is a very large sum in. 1990 for a lower league French team, and they just can't afford that. So RFC, they just say, all right, you're not leaving. And instead cut Bosman's salary by 75%, just about 500 euros a month, and banished him to essentially never play.
0: Okay, what bothers me about that particularly is that if you're frustrated that he wants to go to another team, you would think that you have some kind of valuation of his skills or like want him on your roster in any capacity. It is frustrating to see them like specifically deny someone that they clearly just don't care to have on the field.
2: And the weirdest thing is you can see this a lot in guys who are youth prospects of your team that you don't want going for free after you've done, you know, years of development through, through the Academy whatever. But that's not the case. He was only there for two years after having spent his whole youth career in five seasons at their local rival, he didn't have like an actual connection to this team and they only played him three times. They just didn't want him to go without getting money. Even if they weren't going to use him. So Belgians are somewhat French. So they, they won't let him go full French and cut his salary and banish him to essentially not play. At this point, 25 years old and he can't play Soccer at all, and he can't make any money. So, what does he do? He files a lawsuit. He sues RFC Liège, the Belgian FA, and UEFA. His lawsuits predicated on a breach of rights under the 1957 Treaty of Rome that initially established the European Economic Community, the precursor to the EU, and one of the two treaties. That currently make the eu a real thing so what is the language in this
0: original charter that allows him to like invoke this as his defense
2: i, I will get there okay uh, so allegation was that the rules established by uefa and enforced by liege and the belgian fa limited his right to freedom of movement within the european community so rfc immediately suspends him After They had had already banished him and cut his salary by 75%. Now they just suspend him and refuse to pay him anything. And the Belgian FA follows suit and also suspends him so he can't play for any Belgian team at all. So he's essentially in limbo. And because lawsuits take a long time to go through the court system, both here in America and over in Europe, it takes... Five years for it to reach the European Court of Justice, which is the Supreme Court, essentially, of the EU. During this time, a lower court judge temporarily lifts his suspension, but with his status in limbo, no professional club anywhere will take him. He spends what should have been the peak of his career playing in the amateur leagues of Belgium, France, and the island of Reunion, playing for pennies.
0: Where is the Isle of Reunion? That does not sound like a real thing.
2: It is in the Indian Ocean. I believe it is technically the longest possible intra-country flight you can take from France to Reunion. Uh, It's like off the coast of Madagascar, but it is just considered like, it because France considers all of their overseas departments, like you're not like a territory. No, you are straight up France. You have all the rights of everyone in France. So it's off the coast of Madagascar but still technically just France. So he had to go out there uh, to play for a little bit. Colonialism's a trip. Finally, December 15th, 1995, the European Court of Justice releases a ruling. They say that UEFA's system of clubs retaining rights of players after the expiration of their contracts is a violation of the EC Treaty because it restricts the free movement of workers. The purpose of the treaty, some of the provisions were to facilitate the pursuit by Europeans of occupational activities of all kinds throughout the community and preclude measures that would place them at a disadvantage when they want to pursue an economic activity in the territory of another member state. In that context, if you were a Belgian national, you have the right from that treaty to leave Belgium to go to another state and live there to try to make money as a worker there. Applying your craft. Yes. Any provision that precludes that or tries to deter someone from leaving their country in order to exercise their right to freedom of movement is an obstacle, even if it applies without regard to nationality, even if it's not a discrimination on different nationalities. What the Belgian FA and RFC and UEFA tried to argue is that their laws also apply to transfers within the same country. So it's not you know having one rule for intra-country transfers versus inter-country transfers. But European Court of Justice says it doesn't matter. These rules still restrict movement because it limits where someone can go after the expiration of their contract because they still retain their rights. And so since... You know, this makes it so that a professional footballer cannot pursue any other opportunity until the team that doesn't have to pay him any more money gets whatever they want, no matter how ridiculous it is. It's an obstacle to freedom of movement. This becomes known as the Bosman ruling, and this changes the nature of soccer forever. Now, players are free to leave their clubs at the end of their contract and they can move to another team on what's called a free transfer, but also colloquially known as a Bosman. It's just, he's moving on a Bosman. Additionally, if a player is down to six months left on their contract, they're free to negotiate a pre-contract with another team in a different country so that they can join them immediately upon the expiration of their current deal and not have to, you know, be in a sort of limbo where they have no contract for a while. So you see that a lot with English players, where if you don't, tie them down to an extension. If they're down to six months left in their contract, by that January, they usually have announced that they have a deal to go somewhere in Italy or Germany or France or whatever. Scores of players have benefited greatly from this. Osman is not one of them. He was unable to find a new club after this due to you know having wasted five years in the amateur leagues. So by the time this ruling comes out and he's not suspended anymore, he's over 30 and hasn't played any sort of professional soccer since he was 25. Eventually, by 2010, he ends up living on welfare of about 600 euros a month. Spirals into depression, alcoholism, all the bad stuff that pretty much destroyed his family life. And by 2015, he was living off of handouts from the Players Union FIFPro, Pro, which is the weakest union by far because they, they don't do collective bargaining because obviously they govern all soccer players and they don't have the ability to collectively bargain across multiple countries. So they don't have a ton of power, but they they say that Osman did so much for player empowerment. The Secretary General FIFP Pro said that he opened the doors for a lot of players so we feel responsible for his future. So they were essentially just giving him a couple hundred Euros a month just so he could stay alive.
0: It's a sort of emeritus status.
2: Yeah, and he was kind of off the radar for a while. But he did get interviewed a lot in 2015 for the for the 20th anniversary of the Bosman ruling. He's described the case as a personal catastrophe for him and also has some sadness with the way the ruling has transformed the sport. For him, what he was hoping for was that this would be a thing that could help smaller clubs in that a team couldn't hold on to a player whose contract was over just because a smaller club couldn't afford to buy them, even though the bigger team had no use for him anyway. But one of the side effects of this ruling was that there had been a UEFA rule that capped the number of foreign players in a team for European matches. So, for example, Manchester United, once in the the European Cup, now Champions League, couldn't start Peter Schmeichel, the legendary Danish goalkeeper, in a game because they already had three foreign nationals, aka non-British players, and lost very badly in, in that game.
0: Really feels like goalie should not be one of the positions that you give up on in an international European match if you can only have so many foreign players.
2: That law also gets overturned as a result of this ruling, and that led to very wealthy teams buying up players from all over and funneling talent to just a couple leagues. Quote, for me, the Bosman ruling was about distribution of money towards smaller clubs. Then what we're seeing was bigger clubs growing bigger and all the money circulating between these clubs. Players, again, became like merchandise that was just traded. Part of the reason for this unfortunate side effect on Bosman's part was the massive rise in wages, which is a good thing in many cases for, you know, player welfare and empowerment, but also a bad thing when it comes to talent distribution, because... When this Bosman ruling came out, clubs were freaked out. There, there was legitimate talk that there's never going to be a transfer fee again. No one's ever going to spend any money for anyone because they'll just wait until their contract runs down. I mean, obviously now we have 100 million pound transfers. The reasons it's worked the opposite is because these clubs were so spooked, they started giving massive deals, like really long and really expensive contracts To essentially be like, please don't leave for free, we'll give you whatever you want. But only a few clubs can pay that. And that's how you get people like Manchester United paying 100 million euros for Antony from the Dutch division. And then other clubs saying, hey, if he's worth 100 million and he sucks, you better pay us 150 million for our guy type thing. And how many clubs can afford that?
1: Five, maybe six now that Newcastle has super oil money? Listen, we don't need to talk about where the money comes from. We just need to talk about the fact that we have it. And it's great. Since the Bosman ruling, there's been 27 Champions League finals.
2: Only four teams outside of Spain, Germany, Italy, and England have participated out of the 54 participants. One of those was Ajax in 96 before the ruling had really changed anything. And one is super mega oil rich PSG. So there's really only two surprise finalists in the Champions League in the past 27 years. In the 10 years prior to the Bosman ruling, Stea Bucharest from Romania made it twice and won once. PSV Eindhoven won. Red Star Belgrade from Yugoslavia won. Multiple Portuguese teams. It just that, that type of distribution of, of talent just doesn't really exist anymore. And, you know, he's pretty somber about how that happened. As you can imagine, he's also a little bit bitter about what he perceives as a bit of a thanklessness of what he did with so many players making millions while he lives on handouts. Like I said earlier, the term Bosman transfer is still very widespread, but the actual people who know that Bosman was a person is surprisingly small. One of the few exceptions I saw was that Adrian Rabiot, a French midfielder who used to play at PSG... Ran down his contract and moved to Juventus for like a massive amount of money on a Bosman transfer. His family donated like 12,000 euros to him after the contract, which he makes 7 million euros net a year. And his mom made 10 million euros as commission for the deal going through as his agent. So a, a nice gesture since no one else apparently cares at all, but still, you know, more of a PR stunt than anything.
1: Before you said that his mom was his agent, I thought you were going to say, like, that was just something he negotiated into it. He's like, and you got to give my mom $10 million or I'm not fucking coming.
2: No, Rabio's mom is, like, very notoriously active in that at the Euros in 2021, she got into a fight with, like, Kylian Mbappe's family. She's notoriously overprotective and aggressive about her children. Soccer parents, as we've talked about earlier. But they did actually recognize that Bosman is a person who is still alive and exists. So that part is good. Despite the negative side effects that he did not foresee and, you know, his own personal situation, he's still happy that players themselves are in a stronger position than they've ever been and is overall positive. You know, he said, quote, I'm very satisfied. I did something that was good what it means is that players in the twenty first century have the right to circulate like other workers.
0: It's an important fundamental right. It's one that may be further discussed this evening. But uh, yeah, no, the fact that, as Diaz said before all of this, they are essentially laborers and they are they are entitled to the sweat of their brow.
1: All right, I'm Rand. <laughs> it was fascinating to learn about Bosman being a specific term as well. And, like, all I can think is, like, he's the Tommy John of transactions.
2: Kind of, yeah. Honestly, I think that's a very good way to put it. More people know Tommy John the surgery than Tommy John the person. And I think definitely the same way with Bosman. He's Tim Horton. Okay, we we might have too many of those now.
1: Well, I I think most people knew Tim Horton was was a player. I didn't. I thought it was (laughs) a restaurant, personally. But... That's, that was very thing. funny when
2: we found that out. <laughs>
1: that's the beautiful thing about this podcast, though, right? We, we teach, we learn, we remember. Trent Tucker.
2: There's, this is a theme
0: that we like. I'm not saying that it's a negative that we keep coming up with these.
2: Thank you for letting me talk about Bosman, uh, a man who did a lot for current player power at what ended up being great personal cost, but who I don't think should be forgotten. He really changed soccer forever after his court case. But I know that one of you probably has a story. So who, who's up next?
0: Xavier, I think it's appropriate that I follow behind you just because I'm going to echo a lot of what you said because when you said we we're going to talk about labor, guys, I decided I'm going to go ahead and take the low-hanging fruit. I think there's an obvious important labor player in the last 100 years. I think this guy is one of the 10 most important slash influential whatever you want to say mlb players of the last hundred years who are my top 10 oh thank you so much for asking uh just missing out is nolan ryan and willie mays could not find someone to swap them in for other than that we got the top 10 babe ruth jackie robinson roberto clemente ishiro suzuki hank aaron bob gibson barry bonds ricky henderson shohei otani and a guy who just changed the course of sports history because he really really deeply did not want to play in Philadelphia. Kurt Flood.
2: I, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. I have spent so much time in law school reading this case during my sports law class.
1: Here's the thing. Yes, Kurt Flood, but that could have easily been a ramp up for J.D. Drew, too, who deserved the batteries being thrown in his head. I think it's important that I clearly say that. He deserved the double D batteries being thrown in his head.
2: Diaz, pro fans attacking players. <laughs> we are going to start with Curtis
0: Charles Flood getting born on January 18th, 1938. Herman and Laura Flood are the parents. Houston, Texas is the birthplace. And five is the number of siblings that he has when he is born as the youngest. Kind of not well off. Kurt describes them as not poor, but they had nothing. Uh, In his own words, we ate at regular intervals, but not much.
2: That's a nice way to phrase that.
0: Yeah, you know, he's being realistic. It wasn't great. And so they do try to move to Oakland for some better opportunities. Initially, they moved to East Oakland in an entirely white neighborhood this being World War II slash post-World War II suburbanizing white people, they do not take kindly to that. And so they do quickly move to West Oakland, which is the blacker side of the city at the time. His parents get a job each at the local hospital. And at the age of nine in 1947, Kurt joins the local midget league to get his start in baseball for the juniors sweet shop team. That's a great name. The juniors sweet shop team of the midget league is where he meets George Powell's. George Pals is a coach of young amateur teams, older amateur teams, and also high school teams in the area. He just kind of makes a talent pipeline in Oakland of baseball players, which is, I don't know, kind of gives me weird vibes. But George Pals is going to be very influential in the life of Kurt Flood. He uh, is going to keep getting him up eventually into the high school that he is a coach at when Kurt enters as a freshman. That is McClyman's High School in Oakland which was a little down at the time because they had just lost their star basketball center to the University of San Francisco. That would be Bill Russell.
2: That's a wild school.
0: Well, guess what? Bill Russell had a basketball teammate, and that basketball teammate was about to play baseball with Kurt Flood. They were going to form an outfield that's Frank Robinson along with Kurt Flood. And then the other outfielder this year was Veda Pinson, who has the most hits in baseball history for someone who is not in the Hall of Fame that does not have either cheating or steroid allegations.
2: What was in the water at this high school?
0: Look, man, George Powells knows how to scout him. He knew all of these kids, and he got him into this school. However, shortly after he gets into McClyman's, he actually transfers to Oakland Tech, which is another very, very good school. It is going to be the future high school of Ricky Henderson, as well as Marshawn Lynch, Josh Johnson, Huey P. Newton of the Black Panthers, Clint Eastwood, and Miss Piggy slash Yoda, Frank Oz. These are two wild high schools. Now, some of the reason that he moved to Oakland Tech might have been because there was some issues with eligibility for him being on one of George Powell's amateur teams while also on the high school team. George Powell's a little shady, but he does take care of Kurt Flood because George Powell's, in addition to all of this, is also a scout for the Cincinnati Redlegs.
2: Where does he find the time to do all of this? And how is it not like multiple ethical and moral quandaries?
0: I'm almost certain it is multiple ethical and moral quandaries. (laughs) They are the Cincinnati Redlegs at this point because we are in the Cold War. And in 1956, he signs with the Redlegs for $4,000 and a training camp invite. Gets a first taste of some of the dark sides of baseball during that training camp in Tampa when he and all the black players are shuttled out of the team hotel to a nearby black boarding house, which is where they all had to stay during spring training. And that treatment does not really abate for much of the rest of his time in baseball. But he is not going to let that stop him in 1956 with the Class B High Point Thomasville High Toms.
2: Very creative.
0: Very silly name. He puts up some very silly numbers. He is going to slash 340, 448, 567 with 29 dingers to win Carolina Player of the Year, and he gets a very late season call up to Cincinnati where he gets like three plate appearances but does due to one of them briefly get to share the field with his hero Jackie Robinson. The next year, he moves up to Class A. He is now with the Savannah Redlegs and he has another fine season to get another late call up. He gets Three at-bats once again, and this time does finally get his first major league hit, a home run. He has some good numbers in those minors, but he has one very bad number, and that's 41 errors that year. Because despite being a natural outfielder, the Cincinnati Redlegs were trying to get him to try to shift to third. The thing was, in the outfield at the time, the Cincinnati Redlegs, they were cycling through some veterans. But they also had a 1956 Rookie of the Year, Frank Robinson. (laughs) oh and they also had this exciting prospect that they wanted to bring up and clear some room for veda
2: pinson
0: george powell's basically gave the cincinnati redlegs at one point
2: an outfield hey i have all of these high school players who don't let anyone else know really good
0: they still don't see a place for kurt flood in the outfield so he goes to winter ball for the second year in a row he's going to venezuela and they tell him hey Trying to work out at second maybe this time we want to find a spot for you but we're just not going to get you in the outfield and so he's trying to play second he's struggling here in venezuela when he gets a telegram informing him that he has been traded from the cincinnati red Lakes to the st louis cards absolutely
1: brutal crazy to think telegrams were sent for that purpose they had phones by then he wasn't even worth a phone call to venezuela to venezuela
0: it's it's vicious. And I mean, again, we're
1: going to talk about
0: the vicious behavior of owners. That's what we're here for. But it is going to get a little bit better for him when he gets to St. Louis. This is a good thing for him in the long run. He's going to get up to a $5,000 contract this time, guys. Whew, big money. He's going to start with AA Omaha, but he's not there for as long as he's been the last two years. He's going to really finally catch on in the majors with St. Louis about halfway through. Good year. Gets like some down ballot rookie of the year votes. and already. Stellar center field defender. This team finally realizes, hey, we have a really good defender in center field. Why don't we not try and make him conform to the infield instead? Problem is, the manager Fred Hutchinson that likes him this year is fired, and a guy Salihemis comes in and is uh, just by all accounts a horrible racist and does not like Kurt Flood in the slightest. So Kurt Flood for the next two and a half years. He's still up there. He's still getting like 120 to 140 games a year. His plate appearances, though, crater. Like he's coming in for late inning, defensive replacements, pinch running and stuff. It's, it's not a good time for him. Until Dolly Hemis is replaced halfway through that 1961 season. And in comes Johnny Keane. He does like Kurt Flood. He takes a bit of a shine to him, gets him as the everyday starting center fielder for the rest of that 1961 season. Over the next seven seasons, he's going to win six gold gloves, including at 1.226 games in a row without an error. That is going to come with three all-star games, and he's a big part of the world championships in 1964 and 1967. Gets down-ballot MVP votes a lot of this time. He's slashing 302, 347, 394. .394. has got a little bit of pop, a little bit of speed on the base paths during this seven-year stretch. 69 stolen bases. Nice. Pretty good. He is also, like, he's someone who gets press coverage. Like, St. Louis Cardinals are a big deal at this point, and he's a major part of their team. In 1968, he makes this incredible leaping catch at Wrigley Field, and that is the cover on Sports Illustrated at one point where it says baseball's best center fielder as the headline. And I just want to make sure it's really hammering home how good Kurt Flood was. In his personal life, he is going to get married to Beverly Collins during this time. They are going to have a pretty tumultuous Marriage kind of fading in and out at times, and it does ultimately end in 1966. His creative side is also being nurtured. I do want to mention that in high school, a teacher encouraged him to really take up painting, something he had a knack for, and he's been doing that this whole time. To the point where his nickname in the locker room is Rembrandt, referencing (laughs) for those who may not know Rembrandt Van Rijn, the Northern Renaissance painter. Tries to cash in on this a little bit. His painting and photography tries to get on that sweet, sweet. Senior portrait money, opening Kurt Flood Photography Studio. This is his big money-making venture in St. Louis, just taking all those headshots, your senior year of high school. And that is because salaries are still not phenomenal in MLB at this time, even for a star like Kurt Flood. The average when he got into the league was about 15,000 and it's raised all the way to 22,000 in 1968. Not a whole lot, even for the stars, you've got a couple people making six figures and that's it while Kurt at this point is making $50,000, something that any average person would think is incredible entering that 1968 season comes in and says, I'm going to sit out if you don't give me a raise at this point by war, he is the 11th best player in baseball as a position player. Uh, I think if you add in pitchers, it falls to 17th, but he is an absolute star and says that he will just quit. He makes enough from the photography studio. He can just live a life after baseball. Now they eventually give him a raise of 72,000. But this kind of starts to sour the relationship between him and the organization. Then during the 1968 World Series, they do win another pennant. In Game seven, he slips on some slippery turf and misses a pivotal line drive. Ends up being the difference in a four to one loss to the Detroit Tigers. So it's kind of the goat for that. Uh, Lowercase goat, not all caps. Then we turn to 1969, which is not going to be a nice year for our buddy, Kurt. He does get another slight raise, but basically comes in saying, Bring me up to 90,000 at this point. There's, again, a couple people making six figures like Sandy Koufax, an aging Willie Mays. Bob Gibson is about to get a contract the year after this, and everyone knows he's going to get up to six figures. And so Kurt Flood's like, 90,000. I think we can say ourselves, as pretty enlightened people, that's a fair ask. The St. Louis Cardinals do not agree, they give him 77,500. And he doesn't really have a choice but to take that.
2: He can't do a Ken Dryden and go to law school on the side?
0: I mean, again, he can, but he wants to keep playing baseball. He does love baseball very much. Like, that threat has only so much teeth at this point because they know he wants to come back. Before he comes back, though, his brother Carl is going to get arrested for robbing a jewelry store in St. Louis. And the team uh, feels that that reflects poorly on them. So... In March of 1969, August Bush, the owner of the team, comes to the locker room and kind of delivers this speech to the players about how they shouldn't be greedy and how they should devote all their time to the team and building strong relationships with fans and the press. Oh, by the way, he invited the press to this locker room speech that he delivered to the team.
1: So weird. This feels like the kind of thing that he would have just fired off a few, like, typo-laden tweets if this was happening today. (laughs)
0: yeah absolutely like he it's it's very shitty behavior they all say like the the national league was lost that day they have a really crappy 1969 then comes the offseason kurt flood gets another gold glove but it is clear that his time has come to an end in st louis the the relationship between him and the front office is just totally fractured on october 8th 1969 I, i think it's a question as to whether or not this is more or less insulting than the telegram to venezuela He has an assistant to general manager Bing Devine call him to tell him that he has been traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. Kurt Flood has two thoughts. First thought is, why the fuck is an assistant telling me this? Uh, The specific phrase that he used was mid-level front office coffee drinker. (laughs) Great burn. His next thought turns to where he's been told he's going to get traded. Philadelphia, the nation's northernmost southern city home of a ball club rivaled only by the Pirates as the least cheerful organization in the league. When the proud Cardinals were riding a chartered jet, the Phil's were still lumbering through the air in propeller jobs, arriving on the coast too late to get proper rest before submitting to murder by the Giants and Dodgers.
1: Listen, I want to get mad, but we have the most losses in MLB and sports history. It's pretty on the nose.
0: It's a withering assessment. Pretty darn on the nose, as you say. In particular, he's also dreading the affections of that organization, its press, and its cat-calling, missile-hurling audience. Nah. Nah. All
1: right.
0: (laughs) Now, the owner of the Phillies thinks he can convince him. He's like, I will give you this $100,000 contract if you want to play. But Kurt Flood, again, just truly does not want to play in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, (laughs) Thing is, he also doesn't want to retire. And just like with the last year with St. Louis Cardinals, there isn't a whole lot of options other than that because of the reserve clause, which you mentioned previously, Xavier. The reserve clause was something that had been included in contracts officially as early as 1879. Basically, teams at the end of a year could retain the rights to a player and offer them, at minimum, a one-year contract, and they had no choice but to sign that or not play baseball. And this started with, you could do it for your best five players, then it expanded to 10. And then at one point, it was your entire roster, if you so choose. So this is clearly used to deflate wages. And everyone expected eventually that the 1890 Sherman Antitrust Act was going to somehow break this monopoly up. But in 1922, the first real test of that comes to the Supreme Court. This is the Federal Baseball Club of Baltimore, the Baltimore Terrapins versus the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, a.k.a. the National League. The Federal League had basically been run out of business by the National League and American League, and they were suing them just to get some amount of money because that team hadn't been bought out the way the other Federal League teams had been. At this point, the Chief Justice is a huge baseball fan. It's William Howard Taft, and everyone expects that he's going to rule in favor of the Federal Baseball Club of Baltimore. Except then the court issues a 9 nothing unanimous finding in favor of Major League Baseball, saying that this doesn't count as interstate commerce because baseball is just local games and amusement. So they get an antitrust exemption that uh, is going to exist for several decades because it just counts as local games and amusement, which, by the way, was not extended to boxing or football at this time.
1: Which is particularly absurd because at least with boxing, you can say, okay, this is two individual people and they're fighting at this location and like each event can be argued to be held individually. These are literally leagues that have teams that span several states. The entire country. At, well,
0: okay, sorry, not the entire country in 1922, but it's, it's a bad ruling.
2: This exemption has existed for... It still exists. Baseball still has the only antitrust exemption 100 years later.
0: It will come under some fire. Uh, in the 1950s, there's a representative from New York who's trying to get anyone to bring a case to the House Judiciary Committee. And then in 1955, there is a case, Toulson versus the New York Yankees. This is a like pitcher in the minor leagues of the Yankees who feels like, hey, I got a shot, but the Yankees are so loaded that they'll never give a guy like me a shot, whereas I'm borderline and I can make it on some other team, but they won't let me out of their organization. Something that we've heard before, except this time the court while they agree that the antitrust exemption should not have been issued at that time, say that, well, at this point, it's been going on so long, we really can't do anything about it. Congress should make a law or something and then just kind of throw their hands up. And so the evil empire of the Yankees wins and the evil empire of capitalism wins.
1: And a stunning upset.
0: The come from behind story that none of us saw coming.
2: Literally six years ago, we had a Supreme Court justice say that this is one of the few things that exists in a sea of law where everything everything is contrary to what we've decided in this but we can't actually get rid of it because it's been around for so long and hopefully it'll literally just wash away one day.
0: Well, and you know what is very good at washing things like that away? A flood. Kurt Flood does not want to play for the Phillies. So it is time for him to figure something else out. He talks to Union President Marvin Miller Major player in all of the things that happened, like the surrounding decades in Major League Labor, and Marvin Miller says, "We're ready for a fight, man. We're here behind you." So on Christmas Eve, 1969, sends a letter to Commissioner Bowie Kuhn, basically stating, "Hey, I am not a piece of property. Any system that basically allows people to just trade me without my input whatsoever is fundamentally inconsistent with the laws of the United States. I am able to play baseball in 1970. I want to play baseball in 1970." I get the Phillies offered me a contract. I don't want to play for Philadelphia and I should have that right. Basically, he's asking for free agency, which Bowie Kuhn, perhaps unsurprisingly, immediately denies. So now we've got a lawsuit. He's going to get help from lawyer Alan Zerman, as well as eventually this guy, Art Goldberg, who was a former Supreme Court Justice and Secretary of Labor. So we got a good team. After it goes through the New York Federal Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals, we reach the Supreme Court, we've got the case Flood v. Kuhn. A lot of Flood's arguments are informed by that earlier experience that we talked about and all of the experience he had in baseball with racism and with the Black experience in America. He's referencing indentured servitude and slavery, things that, of course, we have banished here in the United States by legislation. And that forms a lot of the basis of their legal argument. They get a lot of testimonies. Jackie Robinson offers a major one. One owner testifies in favor of Kurt Flood, Our old friend Bill Veck. He's
2: back and better than ever.
0: Bilvec never left, Savior. Bilvec's always been here and he always will in our hearts. It is eventually time for Kurt Flood to take the stand. He's very nervous during his testimony while he's going through his argument about like, hey, I have to build the basis as to why I was a good player and why I was worth this money. He's reading the stats off one of his baseball cards. At the end of his testimony, the prosecutor asks like, what would happen if, if every player at the end of this season became a free agent and Flood's response, I think then every ball player would have a chance to really negotiate a contract just like any other business. They uh, turn to Art Goldberg, ask if they have anything else they want to say. and Art Goldberg's like, nope, I, I think that actually sums it all up pretty well. This is, at the time, the Warren Burger Court. No Burger Kings, no Burger Gods, just the Burger Court. He basically agrees that the Toulson decision that we talked about earlier did not go far enough. So, initially, the court is split 4-4. Eight justices because one of them had a bunch of stake in Anheuser-Busch, so had to recuse themselves. And eventually, Warren Berger falters. And he ends up siding against Flood and in favor of Kuhn. Harry Blackman's the guy that writes the majority opinion. It is, like, excoriated as just one of the dumbest opinions because the very first part is just a protracted thing that has been called an ode to baseball, where he does a brief history of the sport of baseball, then lists 88 players that he considers great. The initial draft had zero black players, and someone pointed this out to him, and then he added three, Jackie Robinson, Satchel Paige, and Roy Campanella. He also then just like quotes a bunch of poems, like Casey at the Bat. It's very stupid, and it's also incredibly stupid because it finds in favor of Major League Baseball once again and denies our boy Kurt Flood. This is surprising to people because while Kurt Flood was like a pariah when this started, he was receiving, by estimate of his teammate Bob Gibson, four to five death threats a day. He is absolutely lambasted at one point for a quote when he's being interviewed about this, where he says, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. This is when everyone's looking at, again, a $77,000 contract and saying, get the fuck out of here. Tries to play baseball for a little bit in the middle of this. In 1971, he gets a brief time with the Washington Senators managed by Ted Williams, who loves him, and is even on a contract that will, protracted, go to 100000 but gives it up very quickly just because he can't stand the taunts. But as this has gone on, by the end of it, some polls are finding that favor has shifted in favor of Flood as much as 8-1, to one, which terrifies Major League Baseball. And that's really the major win from this because... That public opinion is going to be massive when just a couple years later, Andy Messersmith and Orioles legend Dave McNally play a whole year on their reserve clause wage without even signing a contract regarding that. So that the next year they argue, well, we didn't sign a contract. There's no reserve clause this time. You hung on to us last time through that. We don't have one now. There's something called the seats decision. This is an arbitrator who finds in favor of them and is promptly fired by Major League Baseball immediately after that, despite a glowing, like, several-year-long career before that. The players do strike for a little bit in 1976 before they get a new agreement, the MLBPA with MLB, and it results in free agency, which is still a flawed system as we know it today, but it's a hell of a lot better than the alternative. It is something, much like Bosman, that Kurt Flood doesn't get benefit too much from, that 1971 stint with the Senators. That's the end of his time in baseball. Does keep up with the art for a while, has a lovely portrait of Martin Luther King Jr., which was donated to his widow, Coretta Scott King, and then was donated to George W. Bush, and Bush Jr. hung that in the White House. He is also the reason that the 10-5 rule came about, which is something that allows MLB vets with a certain amount of service time to not get traded, veto any of those. And he is also the namesake for the 1998 Curt Flood Act, signed into law by Bill Clinton, which revoked a lot of the antitrust exemption, not all of it, but more than any other piece of legislation had done to that point that is however a posthumous honor as Kurt Flood had passed away due to throat cancer the year before that just after his 59th birthday today he is in the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame not in Cooperstown which is a mistake and I do hope they rectify it but gentlemen we can rectify that today because we can induct Kurt Flood into the Hall of Guy
1: it's a great pitch and it's a great case I am just going to say up front my Philadelphian will not allow me to vote for Kurt Flood when we get to relitigation.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, no, so, like I didn't pander last time, and now I've gone to the opposite of pandering. The joke is how much this man hated Philadelphia.
2: To be fair, you pandered to me because it just makes me happy to hear about it because I, I love the story of Kurt Flood so much as someone who took a literal sports
1: law class in law school. And again, even from my Philadelphia perspective, Better than JD Drew. You could have talked about JD Drew. But That's true. That's true. Oof.
2: Diaz, do you want to talk about someone else who's better than JD Drew?
1: Yeah. I mean, anyone. So, yeah, I mean, which is, again, literally anybody. Uh, so with with the whole depths of the guy universe at my disposal here, it's it's hard to come up with a selection. I like with both of your guys. We're talking about guys that, in the midst of their career, saw an injustice and attempted to correct it. My guy is different from them in that he did not bring up his injustice until some 15 years after uh, when it was relevant. So, really, he himself personally did not stand to gain much from this. But I want to talk about a guy that didn't care about that. He saw that something was wrong. He saw that these organizations that that we all loathe, and we can go to so many. We can talk about FIFA. Really, FIFA is probably the main one that we talk about. But the second one we talk about uh, would be the NCAA. So I want to talk about a guy that saw that, quote unquote, student athletes have been providing a lot of labor for very little compensation. And not just that, but saw name, image and likeness, which is quite the buzz term in sports today. But he saw names, images and likenesses being used without compensation. And he thought that was a little fucked up. So I'm going to talk to the guy that is both the reason why we have name image likeness, but also is the reason why we cannot play NCAA football anymore. Hopefully that'll be fixed soon. But I'm talking about Ed O'Bannon.
2: That's where I thought you were going to go when I chose this topic. And I'm I'm very excited. Please tell me more about Ed O'Bannon.
1: Well, so first of all, the the thing that always confused me is when when this players rights thing always kind of came up I always saw Ed O'Bannon and Northwestern talked about in like the same context and I was like is Ed O'Bannon like some backup quarterback that played in Northwestern blah 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 no Ed O'Bannon is actually a basketball player grew up in South Central Los Angeles where he attended Artesia High School Ed O'Bannon is the shit in high school his junior year he's named an All-American Senior year, he's also named All-American. He's named to the McDonald's All-American game in addition to the Parade All-American team. Uh, So he's Parade All-American junior and senior year. The McDonald's All-American, just his senior year, which McDonald's All-American is an honor specifically for seniors. So really anybody who knows ball knows that Ed O'Bannon is an absolute terror. His senior year at Artesia, he averages 24.6 points to go with 9.7 boards. He leads Artesia to a 29-2 record, and they win the California Interscholastic Federation D2 Championship that senior year.
0: And uh, where is he playing at?
1: Uh, Artesia High School.
0: Sorry, uh, what what position is he playing at?
1: Oh, he's a power forward. Power forward slash center. Uh, So he's in that 6'8", 222.
0: I I heard the nine boards, and I figured he was a tall individual.
1: (laughs) Yes, yeah, a large man uh, who's able to basically physically dominate. And at this time, you know, he's got offers to go just about everywhere. People may think, you know, based in South Central LA, maybe that UCLA program is the place to go. But as he graduates high school in 1991, UCLA is not really the premier program that they were once known as. Uh, They haven't won a championship since 75. John Wooden has moved on. So, the top program really at this time is UNLV, run by Jerry Tarkanian. They're hot on his trail, and he's planning to go there. He has a scholarship offer. But eventually, before he enrolls, UNLV is placed on probation due to recruiting violations. So, decides why not stay home anyway, uh, and he's going to stay in LA to go to UCLA and see if he can lead that Bruins team back to glory. He's... Set to hopefully start that as soon as his freshman year until six days before the first official start of practice. He's playing in a pickup game with just other guys at UCLA, goes up for a dunk. When he lands, he lands awkwardly, unfortunately tears his ACL. And these days, thankfully, an ACL tear is not necessarily it's severe. Of course, you're going to miss time, but
0: it's not the end of the world.
1: There's no real fear that with, like, proper surgery and rehabilitation, you're going to be back to 100% strength. Those concerns absolutely existed back then. Not just to the extent that he may not be able to play on the same level. They're worried he may not be able to play again, period. There's concerns he may not be able to walk properly, but thankfully, he has a successful rehab process. It's an arduous one. Lasts 18 months, but he does eventually make it back. First year, they're going to ease him back in. Uh, He comes off the bench in 23 games, uh, and he averages less than four points. He doesn't make any starts. Coming into the second year, though, he's back to full strength. He's feeling ready, and he is named to the first-team All-Pac-10 in his first full year as a starter. He can average 16.7 points a game to go with seven boards, 2.3 stocks, my personal favorite stat. Uh, He loves the stocks. I just love people who either take the ball away or prevent it from going into the basket. It's one of my favorite things in basketball. But yeah, across 33 games, he starts 32 of them, averages 33 minutes a game, and starting to get his footing back. By his junior year, he is not only named first-team All-Pac-10, he's also named as the team MVP. And uh, this sets the stage to go into his senior year. So for the 94-95 season, It's been 20 years since UCLA has won a national championship, and Ed thinks it's time to to get back, get that corrected. First of all, the honors that he receives during the regular season. He's a consensus first-team All-American. If you're a publication that has a first-team All-American, Ed O'Bannon's on it. (laughs) He's named the Pac-10 Co-Player of the Year, along with Arizona's Damon Stoudemire, and first-team All-Pac-10 for the third consecutive year. This year, though, he only gets co-team MVP along with Tyus Edney. Tyus Edney did not last long in the NBA.
0: He made the league. I I shouldn't mock. If he made the league, then he's a baller.
1: Yeah, Tyus Edney. Shout out Tyus Edney, co-MVP. But once it got to the NCAA tournament, this is where it's time to separate the boys from the guys. And Ed O'Bannon, again, as I said was not going to miss out on an opportunity to bring glory back to his his hometown program. UCLA tears through the 94 95 tournament in the 1995 championship game. They're going against the Arkansas Razorbacks. It's a high scoring affair. Uh, UCLA only leads by one going into half 40 to 39, but they eventually pull away to win their first national championship in 20 years Winning 89 to 78 over the number two seeded Arkansas Razorbacks. Ed O'Bannon for the game, 30 points, 17 rebounds, and for his efforts, named the most outstanding player of the tournament.
0: That's a very full trophy case after college.
1: Very full trophy case already before he's even made it to the pros. I do want to give one shout out to Tyus Edney. Don't want to slander too much. Were it not for his full-court sprint to lay it in just ahead of the buzzer against Missouri in the second round gave them a one-point victory. We would have never got to the championship game where Ed goes off for that 30-17 stat line. Shout-out Tyus. Shout-out Ed. They become national champions for the first time in 20 years. The following year, Ed O'Bannon's number 31 was retired by UCLA. He would be inducted into the UCLA Hall of Fame 10 years later in 2005 and eventually in 2012 was named to the Pac-12 Basketball Hall of Honor. Not fame, honor.
0: Is honor better or worse? Do they also have a Hall of Fame? How do we stack the virtues?
1: I mean, to me, I would personally put honor at the top because, like, fame doesn't necessarily mean good. You can be famous for shitty reasons.
0: That's true. That's true. There are a lot of baseball players in the Hall of Fame that would not make a Hall of Honor.
1: Exactly. So I think we we don't need to worry about any Alomars making it into a Hall of Honor anytime soon. Ed O'Bannon will hold that distinction. Coming off of this, you know, obviously he's going to be a pretty, pretty sought-after NBA draft prospect. This is still in the era where how long you stayed in college doesn't really affect your draft stock much, if at all. If anything, it's seen as a positive that he stayed four years at UCLA, a top program, led them back to prominence, and he ends up being a lottery pick for it. He's hoping to stay on the West Coast. Some teams that could have had opportunities to take him. Golden State has the number one pick. Would have been great to stay there. Unfortunately, they go Joe Smith. The second pick, LA Clippers. Again, another great opportunity. They take Antonio McDice and trade him to Denver. At the number eight pick, could have even seen if he would have gone to Portland. He's still on the West Coast. Uh, they take a guy named Sean Respert which means that at number nine, Ed O'Bannon is going to get drafted by the New Jersey Nets.
0: Ooh, going back to New Jersey for the soccer drama.
1: No soccer drama here. He would sign a three-year $3.9 million contract, which is more than enough compensation. But I mentioned his frame earlier. He's 6'8", 222, which is more than enough size to dominate the college game, certainly the high school game. But you're kind of in that tweener role in the NBA where he's not big enough to hang with the big centers. And especially in context of his reconstructed knee, he's not quick enough to stay with the perimeter players. He also attributes being homesick to this. He personally would never attribute it to injury. He said it wasn't injury. It was confidence. It was being homesick, living on the East coast for the first time after again, still staying very close to home at UCLA. After Two years with the Nets, uh, he gets traded to the Mavericks, played 19 games in Dallas in that second season, but he just never really stuck. And again, feeling homesick, flames out of the NBA. Being homesick apparently does not restrict him from international travel. However, he's going to bounce around several different European leagues. To hear him say, it, he said he played for about 12 teams in a span of six years. But if we were to go to his Wikipedia page, the journey goes, New Jersey Nets. Dallas Mavericks, La Crosse, Bobcats, Segas, APS, Trieste. That's a good place. It's a very sad place. No, it's a good place. I, I like Trieste. Beautiful part of Italy. A right. the station there. Trieste. We're, we're going for our Spanish audience with a the joke there. If it didn't land, that's okay. <clears throat> Valdoid is his fifth, then goes to Rathindo Aigon, Boca Juniors, the Los Angeles Stars,
0: what league are the Los Angeles Stars in?
1: The Los Angeles Stars in 2000-2001 with the ABA.
0: Oh, the, the weird zombie ABA.
1: Yeah, the more successful, less successful than XFL 2.0?
0: More successful than XFL 2.0 in that it lasted multiple seasons.
1: We'll see. XFL 3.0 is coming to you soon, though. <laughs>
0: Third time's the charm.
1: On Will we'll cloud Polonia Warsaw... And then Ostromeco, Astoria, Biedrowsk. Horribly sorry to any of our Polish speaking listeners who just saw me butcher those pronunciations. But Ed says 12, Wikipedia says 11. So if any of you out there know the 12th team that Ed O'Bannon played for, please get in contact with us. Check out the Twitter, <laughs> whoever you got. Would love to know that 12th team that Ed O'Bannon played for. But he bounces around never really sticks anywhere, and never returns to the NBA after leaving with the Dallas Mavericks. So at this point, this could have just been a guy that had a very successful college career, had his number retired, never quite made it in the NBA, already very much a remember that guy candidate. However, we're talking about labor rights. I haven't said anything about labor rights yet. What Ed O'Bannon gets himself involved in is perhaps the most selfless thing that we could ever ask for stands to benefit very little himself but he's tired of seeing these college kids get screwed over and the way this starts is uh in the college basketball video game for ncaa 2010 they don't just have the current players in not being named but as we'll learn with ed there's some some shady stuff going on here so they have a throwback team The 94-95 UCLA team is in this college basketball game, but they don't use anybody's name. It's important in these college video games, they don't use names because since these players are amateurs, you are not able to use their likeness for any kind of profit. So Ed O'Bannon is not in the NCAA basketball video game, but they do have PF number 31, who wears the same number that Ed O'Bannon wore. This person also plays power forward, also is the same height that Ed O'Bannon was listed at, also is the same weight, has the same bald head and the same skin tone. And if this isn't enough, this number 31 also just happens to shoot left handed as Ed O'Bannon does. A remarkable series of coincidences or perhaps EA Sports in producing the NCAA basketball video game has used Ed O'Bannon's likeness without his consent. This is what bothers Ed O'Bannon. So it's not just him, but he also then sees all of these current players Uh, in NCAA 09. That UCLA team would have had Kevin Love and uh, I believe Russell Westbrook would have been on that team Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, We could have had early Darren Collinson on that team, but none of these guys are named in this. It's just PG number zero, (laughs) F number 42, like anybody with even the slightest bit of a discerning eye can clearly see is this supposed to be the real players and they're just not using their names. But
2: unless you have the Sports, mods where you just downloaded the names,
1: well that was where I think EA Sports started getting particularly bald with it as they said, "Oh, users can, you know, create their own custom rosters and upload them." And since it's user created, it's not us doing it. But yes, it became by the time that uh, internet online gaming became a part of, you know, the standard gaming experience, you could easily within a day or two of the game being released, go online Find somebody that said, hey, I like added names to all the thing, download it, boom. Now you have all the names in your game. But Ed O'Bannon thought that was bullshit. And he was able to find a couple other people that were bullshit. So is able to find 20 other former college athletes to be plaintiffs with him in a lawsuit, which he files against the NCAA itself, EA Sports, and also the college licensing company, which is the company that... Has the rights to the teams, which EA then contracts with to be able to put University of Wisconsin, UCLA, all that, to be able to put them in the game. Get some significant people to join him on this lawsuit. First of all, Big O, Oscar Robertson. And we're also going to get our second Bill Russell reference in this podcast. Bill Russell named as a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the NCAA, EA Sports, and the collegiate licensing company.
0: Bill Russell was so fucking cool.
1: Everything he did was great.
0: Except for winning championships for the city of Boston. Though, I mean, to be fair, he'll say he won them for the Celtics organization, which isn't that much better, but it's a little better.
1: Or for himself. For him and his teammates, right? For him and his fellow guys, that's who Bill's looking out for. That's who Ed's looking out for. Now, EA Sports and Electronic Arts in general is a very scummy company. However, they pale in comparison to the NCAA, which is why they immediately want no part of this lawsuit. They're going to settle immediately. They final a $40 million settlement, which would net 4000 to the 100,000 current and former NCAA athletes who appeared in some form in either the NCAA basketball or NCAA football series since 2003. Now, 100000 sounds very crazy, but when you think that there are roughly 350 Division I member institutions, say 15 to a basketball team, There's about 120 that play football, assume 80 to a roster there. We're talking about anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 guys on each iteration of those games. So it quickly adds up. The $40 is but a penance to EA Sports to do the classic, admit no wrongdoing, blah, blah, blah. But also part of this is that EA Sports ceases and desists. Since they reached this out-of-court settlement, there has not been a NCAA football game made. There has not been an NCAA basketball game made. EA has announced that they are working on another college football game. It will still not use the the likenesses of the players. However, that has since been delayed multiple times. Color me skeptical if it ever does happen. Now, EA was smart enough to get ahead of this and uh, settle out of court. But as we mentioned, the NCAA is a horrifically corrupt institution that thinks that it can just get everything its way. So, they take it to trial. The trial starts on 6-9-2014, nice, uh, and would end June 27th, 2014. Uh, So for roughly two and a half weeks, these arguments are being held. Written closing arguments were submitted on July 10th. By August 8th, we have a ruling, and the judge has ruled that the NCAA's long-held practice of barring payments to athletes violated antitrust laws. Important to note, Obama's central argument was just, hey, I'm not saying anything about like whatever the, the current collegiate athletes say, whatever you want about amateurism. I'm saying I graduated 20 fucking years ago and you're still not paying me for using my likeness in this. <laughs> Wilkin takes it a step further. So, with the NCAA in its hubris, taking it to trial, ends up getting themselves supremely fucked by the ruling. She rules that schools should be allowed to offer full cost of attendance scholarships. So, not just your standard scholarship, but your room and board, your living expenses. She also rules that they should be allowed to place 5000 a year into a trust for each athlete. The NCAA would appeal the ruling, suggesting that they did not properly consider a previous case that the NCAA had won. This goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says bullshit. Not only does the Supreme Court say bullshit, they say you also need to pay $42.2 million in fees and costs to the plaintiffs. So really just fantastic work by the NCAA, utterly and completely playing themselves, end up getting a ruling that's even worse than what Ed O'Bannon was originally seeking. So just beautiful stuff from everybody's favorite monopoly. <laughs> so Ed O'Bannon plays a key role in that. If you remember when all this was originally going down in 2014, you may remember that he appeared in John Oliver with a March sadness segment, which basically, as oh, John, yeah. Oliver, that was that was Ed O'Bannon. Ed O'Bannon was the guy in that thing. It, he, he was that guy. He was that guy. And my favorite quote in that is, uh, you know, it's just mocking the experiences of college basketball players. And. His reigning endorsement of the fictitious game, Ed O'Bannon says, this game is every bit as fucked up as the real thing. He would later write a book about his court case with the NCAA uh, and has come out as a supporter of the Fair Pay-to-Play Act, uh, which is the California law which essentially allows student-athletes to receive endorsement deals. As for what Ed O'Bannon's up to today, he was a car salesman uh, until being promoted to the marketing director of that same auto dealership. And as of 2020, he became a probation officer in Las Vegas. So
2: I don't know if that's lateral. He just wanted to live in Vegas.
1: Right. I mean, he finally does make it home after not going there with UNLV. But I mean, I think the fact that he's seeking out these other careers and not doing anything in the NIL space, which has become very rapidly a very profitable space for not just the athletes, but listen, there's marketing directors, there's all kinds of different angles that people are looking to get a slice of the pie. But the fact that Ed O'Bannon has became a probation officer and has no interest in that says to me that this is not Ed O'Bannon being interested in the money or doing it for the money. He's trying to look out for his fellow athlete, his fellow guy, and ensure that justice be done. And... We are not in the space that we are today where athletes are using their NIL deals to get free swag for their teammates or, you know, using the money to to help pay for a sibling's education. All these great things that we get to see these athletes do would not be possible without two things. First of all, the hubris of the NCAA to actually take that thing to trial and Ed O'Bannon looking out for his fellow guy with the lawsuit. And I mean, if Bill Russell got on board with it, I think, who are we to say that Bill Russell is? (laughs) But yeah, Ed O'Bannon, nothing to do with Northwestern, just supported their unionization effort. And a UCLA guy, a New Jersey net guy, unfortunately. A television,
0: hey, that guy.
1: That guy from that thing on John Oliver. And again, a man who played for a 12 teams. We only know 11. If you know the 12th, please reach out to us. But one thing I know for sure, Ed O'Bannon is a certified guy.
0: I mean, maybe the 12th team will be the Hall of Guy team. Maybe he had the premonition to to know that he'd be brought up here. I feel a little on my heels at first because I'm realizing, Diaz, everything that you said at the end, not to take away at all from Ed O'Bannon... You know, we're not in any of the spaces that we are for any of these three leagues, sports environments without any of these three guys. There are clearly a lot of parallels here between all of them. I mean, everything you said about the transfer window, when they didn't want to pay the Cardinals—that is, Kurt Flood—they had the league-leading payroll that season in 1969 of eight hundred thousand,
1: not even seven figures.
0: Not even seven figures at. And now you look at Steve Cohen's "Fuck you Mets money," and it's it's absurd. And now you look at N i l and it's absurd. So here's the thing though, I'm on my heels because Ed O'Bannon won his case. Bosman, eventually, though it was disastrous, won his case. Kurt Flood did not win his
1: case that is, true. That, is that is an interesting technicality of it. But I mean, I think we we still got to look larger picture, right? Like, we're not seeing Carlos Correa get $35 million a year despite having an apparently non-functioning body anymore.
0: Wait, um, yeah, hold on. Are we seeing Carlos Correa get paid $35 million a year? As Xavier always says, there hasn't been a press conference
2: yet. Until there's a press conference, I do, I, even after the press conference, I'm still slightly hesitant because I saw this happen before with a head coach at his press conference and resign on a napkin and then go win more Super Bowl rings than he has fingers on his hand. So I'm always cautious about that.
0: I also don't want to make it sound like Oban and Bosman would only be talking here because of the technicality. I mean, I love Bosman becoming a single term phrase. I absolutely adore that. I love the bit about him still like kind of being a, a hanger on with this player's union. Seems kind of like unjust that that's all they're able to do for him. And we often talk about this hall honoring those that might not have gotten the honors due to them. If that's where we're going, then Bosman might be candidate number one with a bullet, but at the same time, O'Bannon ending a
2: video game Behemoths series. That part is not good for me personally, who liked that video game a lot.
0: Well, if we're talking about full impact, maybe the magnitude's not something that we like, but it's still a big magnitude.
2: True.
1: Ice Everywhere do love those video games, though.
0: And I remember playing NCAA 14 with you guys even before I realized that it would be the last one ever.
1: God, they, you, you know, people still mod that game. Isn't yeah. that incredible? I yeah.
0: loved reading an article the other uh, year, like two back that The Ringer did about, it. yeah, here are the people who still update this every single season.
1: The best was, um, who was it? It was somebody for SB Nation, I think, when, when we were in the throes of lockdown, turned the worst team in college hoops, 2K5 into like an absolute dynasty. Finest-
0: Sounds like Roger Sherman with a bullet. I need to stop saying with a bullet. No, but, and, and again, we don't have this rich, modern culture if not for Ed O'Bannon. So I, it's tough. I I think I'm leaning between those two. I feel like Kurt Flood, again, lost the case. And I don't know if, if losing the case, that might be enough of a ding against him that he's going to lose this case as well.
1: And Xavier, Xavier, again, I made my stance very clear that while Kurt Flood was right about Philadelphia, only Philadelphians can say those things about Philadelphia.
2: Okay, so I guess that means that we can... As much as I really loved James speaking on Kurt Flood, I think that means we can take Kurt Flood off the list, and then it's down to Ed O'Bannon and jean Mark Bosman. So, James, who do you like better out of, the, out of those two, then?
0: It is tough for me that Bosman... There's, we don't get to see much other than the case. Bosman is almost entirely the case. And to an extent, I mean, that's, that's another thing that's kind of ding against Kurt Flood. It's almost, you know, consumed his larger career. There's something that I do love about Ed O'Bannon being this traveling Ronin player, just going from European country to European country, seemingly at random.
1: Poland. Is where he spent the most time. Most of it was in Poland. the 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 last uh, three seasons, all in Poland.
0: I I'm very torn between the two. I keep like wanting to land on one, and then I shift to the other because at the same time, like this does feel like an opportunity to be like, "Hey, Bosman, people know Ed O'Bannon. Ed O'Bannon is a figure in our lives in like a more modern way, in a more relevant way with this video game. God, I don't know. It's tough."
1: I could go for Bosman. I just can't go for Kurt Flood because he spoke some truth about Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, you really didn't like hearing it laid out all like that, did you?
2: See, you know, obviously I'm biased. I like Bosman a lot just because he wins. He wins his case and then gets zero benefit for it while the sport then becomes richer than ever with players making millions and millions and millions and having nope. unprecedented power.
0: I fared it out. I fared it out. Bosman did an incredible job. Those players had salaries before. Ed O'Bannon accidentally, by all accounts, created an entirely new class of salaried employee. If we're talking about a percentage, you know, sure, 800000 as the biggest team salary to... What, 325 million if they finish signing Correa for the Mets? That's a lot. 500,000 is a transfer fee to hundreds of millions of pounds. That's a lot. Zero to millions of dollars is infinite percent. And as we know, math wins me over.
2: That, that is true. And honestly, the, the joy for me is that I got the two of you talking about legal cases so you know what, I am totally happy to concede this one to 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 Diaz.
1: Harry
0: Blackman is such a shitty justice. My God. I went into some like just a terrible writer, legal thinker. Harry Blackman, if there is a like hall of shame for Supreme Court justices, throw Harry Blackman
2: there. Was Byron White on that on on that court? I think he was.
0: Entirely consumed by Harry Blackman and our Burger Lord Warren.
2: You know what? I believe Byron White was. Yes, Byron White was on that course, which is great because he sure. is he, he is the wizard. He is the only Supreme Court Justice who was also a consensus All-American and Heisman Trophy runner-up.
0: Shit, that's a pretty good guy for someday.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, this made me very happy talking about the legal stuff. I concede to Idaho Bannon.
0: So is this a majority decision or a unanimous decision unanimous. to remain be unanimous. in, in unanimous. the
2: court speak? Unanimous.
1: Well, having heard all closing arguments, this court must find by a margin of 3-0 that there has been a successful litigant. There has been a successful guy. And we will induct into that hall Edward Charles O'Bannon Jr., a.k.a. Ed O'Bannon. Welcome to the Hall of Guy.
0: Welcome to the hall. Gracious for the wisdom of the guy, Bunel. It was good to talk that out. That was a tough decision. I appreciate you guys letting me spin my gears there, but can't argue with math.
1: The math always comes up, guy.
0: <laughs> oh, look at that! Kevin McCarthy just lost another vote.
1: Are we at ten now? Eleven.
2: Eleven losses. Eleven times a loser.
1: Cleveland Brown's got to look out here. Owen seventeen is uh, is in, in jeopardy.
2: This
0: has been a a very judicial and judicious use of our time and uh, we appreciate you all spending with that we got big plans this year i think it's safe to say we have some things that we'd like to do to expand the scope of of the rtg universe as we record for the first time here in 2023 and we're looking forward to that and if you want to you know tell more people to check it out gosh darn it we think this is a pretty swell show and we sure would appreciate that go ahead and leave a reviewer rating you can always. Check us out on Twitter at rememberguyspod or email us guys at rememberingguys at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Don Ham for that absolutely incredible theme song that I just adore hearing every single time. Any last notes from the two of you? Oh, who won the... Uh, who's the third-place champion? The people need to
2: know. So... So,
1: our game was very much still in contention entering the Monday night game. Me having Josh Allen going and Xavier having Stefan Diggs. So... Xavier held the lead and sleeper did have him at about a 70% chance of winning as the score was left. So in the interest of just making it simple and also incredibly Xavier, despite being, I would say the second best team in the eight year history of our league has never finished in the money decided we'll do, we'll do the the right thing. Uh, Xavier claims the third place crown. Uh, Sending a portion of that to a cause, right? Xavier.
2: Yeah. I I sent a quarter of that to, Damar hamlin's uh toy drive which i again recommend that anyone else who either won money from fantasy or through gambling on nfl stuff send a portion there or to another good cause on this day but
1: again Damar hamlin was on the bench for that game but still an important part of my team so also uh, match xavier's contribution to the fund so hoping to see things continue to look up there for demar uh, we'll, we'll leave with that thought just as i started the pod Incredible work by, by the whole Doctor team, it seems, by all accounts, so.
0: We will just leave it at that. I've been James.
1: I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Obi-Wan Kenobi once said, these aren't the guys you're looking for.